pause, renew, next. A podcast about soul care, scripture, and stories of faith. I'm Jenny Detweiler, and friends, I am so excited about today's podcast episode. Over the summer, I reached out to you guys on social media and I asked, what are some subjects that you'd like me to cover this year on the podcast? And one of the answers was a resounding, please talk about how to raise teenagers. Now you guys, I am smack dab in the middle of raising my own teenagers. So I decided to reach out to some knowledgeable colleagues who could cover this topic well. So today is the first of two interviews about this subject. Now, before you turn this podcast off, if you don't happen to be raising your own teens, I think the information you're going to gain in this episode and the following one will be helpful for anybody who has any contact with teenagers, whether you be a parent or a teacher or a grandmother or a mentor or somebody who helps with the youth at church, or maybe you're a teenager yourself. I guarantee you're going to get so much knowledge and encouragement from this episode. So it is my pleasure to reintroduce you to an old friend of the podcast, Dr. Jackie Perry. Jackie was on the very first season of the Pause Renew Next podcast to talk about her up-and-coming book, which has now been released, Heart Cries of Every Teen. Jackie has been a therapist of teenagers for years, and she's raised her own three children, and she is a wealth of knowledge. In today's episode, we're going to talk about all kinds of issues related to teenagers and development. And specifically in this episode, we're going to talk more about girls. In next episode, we're going to cover more about guys. So keep that in mind as you're listening to today's podcast. So with that, let's jump into our conversation with Dr. Jackie Perry. Well, Jackie, welcome back to the podcast. I'm so glad to have you back as a repeat guest because you were so good the first time. Thank you. I, over the summer, asked my audience, was there anything that they wanted to hear on the podcast? And I got quite a bit of feedback, but one of the things was, can you please talk about parenting teens? Um, And I thought, oh, who would be better than Jackie Perry to talk about this? So I'm glad to have you back and to talk with you today about teens in general, but definitely about teenage girls. But before we do that, would you like to introduce yourself and kind of share you are, anything you'd like us to know about you? Yes. I am Jackie Perry. I'm a licensed clinical mental health counselor and supervisor in the state of North Carolina. Um, I also am a an assistant professor and the program chair of the clinical mental health counseling program at Montreat College in North Carolina. I am also the wife of John Perry and the mother of three adult children. Um, so we made it through those teen years. My specialty area has been counseling teens and emergent adults, and now really doing a lot of parenting consults um, with that age group. Yeah, that's me. Awesome. Can you share some of your history of working with adolescents? Like, how did you get into that area specifically? Yeah, I was thinking about this, and um, I am one of those, I think they're pretty rare today, people who go straight from undergrad to their graduate program in clinical mental health counseling. There tends to be a gap, at least in the programs in which I've been an instructor. So I was the ripe old age of 22 years old when I went to get my master's in counseling. And that meant that I was doing my internship and practicum uh, where you actually are seeing clients at the ripe old age of 23. And I think that that really, 
I think probably my insecurity and like, how would I work with adults? How would I work with people who are much older than me played a role in that? Uh, and the reality is I wasn't farther, that much farther ahead. So my, all of my clinical work in my graduate program was working with adolescents and I loved it. I loved the passion, the intensity. I love the, the season of life where people are trying to figure out who they are although that continues throughout life. Um, I felt really comfortable in the midst of conflict. I didn't mind. Um, not that I didn't mind being spat upon because I was oh. <laughs> or yelled at <laughs> because I was, but I could handle it. It didn't shake me up and cause me to run away. And so I felt like that was, uh, you know, God really clarifying my call in terms of working with adolescents. So I kind of it really probably had a lot to do with my age, really. I was so young and felt like that's probably the only age group that I could work with, which is really not true. But at the time, that's yeah, yeah. at the time, that's how I ended up in that area. And I've stayed there ever since. Mm. Yeah, that's so neat. I think it's really interesting. We may have talked about this before, but I went into counseling thinking that I would probably work with kids, maybe in the school setting. And somehow that switched to agency. And then somehow I started working and I ended up with teenagers and women and just found my sweet spot. And I guess God knew I was going to raise my children. So then <laughs> in my clinical work, I can be with adults. He just takes yeah. us where we need to be, I guess. So, yeah, 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 that's very true. That's true. So I'd love to start out our conversation talking about development because you know a whole lot about adolescence, what that stage of development looks like, what's happening in the brain, and how that affects parent-child relationships and dynamics mm -hmm. and all that. Can you mm -hmm. share just, I know you could talk for an hour about that, maybe five hours about that. Mm -hmm. Like in mm -hmm. a nutshell, can you give us some statistics and information about that? Yes. Um, so yes, I could talk a long time about it. And, and especially in this day and age, which we'll talk about in a little bit, um, it's really important to remember that the way that the human body develops really hasn't changed. There's been some external factors that have shaped that a little bit. But, you know, one of the biggest things that we all know, because we've been there or we're raising teenagers, is that the brain and the body are shifting. So, you know, puberty is happening. And in every area of, of a kid's body, they are changing. And the pace is different from kid to kid, which actually can be maddening for both the kid and the parent because the, the manner, the pace in which that unfolds um, and the rhythm in which that unfolds is really, really different. And we know a lot about how that affects mental health in children. But one of the biggest things, it's not really even new anymore, and most of your listeners have probably heard about this, is the one shift that's happening between about 10, 11, 12 to about 13, 14, 15 is... Um, what's 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 happening in the brain and that really does shape a lot of what we see or impact a lot of what we see so the brain moves from something called proliferation where lots and lots and lots and lots of neurons are happening and growing and the brain is just absorbing information and you see this like zeal for learning from about 5 to 12 13 and the brain starts to take a um you know a left turn and starts pruning and that's a really slow process that takes about 10 years. And the beautiful thing about that is that's why we see um, this sharpness in teenagers. They can begin to think very clearly in some ways. They can have great arguments because they're, they're very focused um, and they have this new capability in their brain. The negative is there's so many pathways in their brain that haven't been pruned that their minds are muddy. 
and um, they just don't have a very clear way of navigating. It's almost like having too many paths to get from here to the library. And um, I don't always know which one to take and I spend too much time thinking about it. And that can be about decisions as silly as like what to wear when I'm going to, you know, the movies with friends or school um, versus how to navigate something that happened on social media with my friend. So it's really troubling because there's so many pathways. So lots and lots of changes developmentally. And of course, these affect, uh, I think, the parent-child relationship and, and sibling relationships as well, because it's not like we get a signal that says, oh, this is changing now. It just starts to change. And, and from a parent's perspective, I'll use my own, uh, we just keep treating, you know, I just kept treating Emily as Emily, Alex as Alex and Sam as Sam. And I wasn't always mindful of this incredible shift that was happening that was really affecting them physically, emotionally, socially. One, one, one of the changes, and I talk about this in my book, this is so little, but it's, it's one of those that we don't always think about. And it's a big deal for kids, especially with uh, social media these days. The face actually starts to change at a weird rate. And I've always thought this was fascinating because the nose actually grows faster than the jaw lines. And you'll see this in middle schoolers. And it's real. And, and so because kids growing up now versus when I was growing up have so many images of themselves, they're super aware of this. I don't think I was ever aware of that. I, I probably looked at myself in the morning and the evening when I brush my teeth, brush my hair kind of, kind of thing, maybe in between some, but but not like kids do today. So those kinds of things, just that one little shift, let alone all of the other things that happen to the body, cause a lot, a lot of uh, emotional kind of uh, overflow, I guess you can say, or impact. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's funny that you say that because now that you mention it, I <laughs> I can see that. I don't think I ever thought of it in quite that way before. I don't think I realized then the nose was before the jawline, but Yeah. Yeah. For middle schoolers, it's just an awkward stage <laughs> for a lot of reasons. And they tend to be a little clumsy because That's right. their brain is pruning back to front, right? That's right, from mm-hmm. back to front. That's right. Which is, you know, the back is where the motor neurons are. So you'll see coordination early on in this process from 14, 15 to 25. So you'll see athletic abilities just soaring in the high yeah. school years. That's because the the motor neurons, the, you know, develop the balance and uh, gross, big muscles are being pruned first. Mm-hmm. The clear thinking, the executive functions, which are in the front, are those last ones to be pruned. If it, that doesn't mean they don't work well, because they do. And I, I don't like giving teenagers a bad rap in that way, but they're just not as effective as they will be. Mm-hmm. And yeah. sometimes I think that that leads to impulse control issues Absolutely. that we see a lot in teenagers, like risk-taking and not thinking yes. through consequences for sure. Yes. So I'd love to talk to you about teen girls specifically, although I know that you've raised both and you see both. Um, What are some of the specific challenges that you think teen girls are facing right now or that you see in your practice when they're coming in? Well, I think the biggest, um, the biggest thing, if I was put to put one word across several things that are happening that are related to development, but are definitely intersecting with culture is identity. We know that identity development is, is actually, you know, a big part of the adolescent years, but how I form my identity is very informed by not just 
my home and my relationships, my attachment relationships with my mom and dad, maybe grandparents, maybe people in my extended family, but it's very shaped by those with whom I spend my time. And those could be physical face-to-face relationships, but they certainly can be online, uh, social media, images on TV. And so this massive counterbalance that we have in culture that makes it difficult for parents and the institutions that we sort of choose as parents to impact our kids' identity. There's, if you think about weights and balances, it's just really hard to make that um, kind of outweigh the some of the impact um, and the confusion, because I'm not going to even call it negative. I just think that our culture is very confused regarding identity. There's so many places and spaces in which a person can attach their identity, right? It can be about my gender. It can be about what I look like or what I have or how much I have or how smart I am. And identity is so much more than that. Uh, it's so much more than that. And it's impacted by by culture. So, you know, Again, I don't want to like say social media is the problem because it's not. There are many things out there, but social media, when we're talking about girls, the number of hours, and this is proven, there's, I think, too many studies out there now to show this. It's flooded that research to really kind of prove that the number of hours that our teen girls are spending on devices, watching TV, watching shows, but really on um, those images, Snapchat, uh, Instagram, et cetera. really, really affecting mood. Um, When I'm looking at those all day long, and then in my pictures, my photos or my, you know, images in the mirror, I see something that doesn't seem to measure up and it never will. It never will. Um, It'll affect my sense of self and I'll want to start changing and, you know, those kinds of things. So we see an increased amount of anxiety, an increased amount of depression, increased amount of eating disorders, all kinds of things younger than we ever did before. So we always saw those kinds of things in the adolescent, emergent adult years, but we're seeing those much younger because they're being impacted by some of the things that kids are getting much younger mm-hmm. these days. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to be talking to somebody about boys next week. So we're going to talk more about video gaming then, but it seems like social media, yes, both genders use it, but it is a big, big draw for the girls. Do you see that in your practice? Yes. And I think the other thing, when I think about social media, that's very different. And again, this is, you know, many of your listeners will know this, but there's no break, right? There's no off time. So if I'm a parent with a teen girl and I was a parent with a teen girl, I may come into her room. I may try to have conversations with her and there's this continuous stream of information coming back at her. She may be looking at her phone. She may be getting attacks. She, you know, there's, it never went off. It never goes off. And, and that's a, that's a challenge. And I think that's one of the things when we talk about things that parents can do, that's one of the things that we've got to find a balance in that. Uh, It's no wonder I was speaking to um, uh, camp counselors this summer at a a large camp in the area. And um, you hear these stories about what happens at camp. In fact, they call some, they have these days of what happened at camp. two weeks at camp. And I'm not saying that's the solution, but I just, two weeks at camp does a lot for a lot of kids because it's away from some of what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And the counterbalance, a good camp is really fueling and filling and feeding the souls of our girls in in helpful and positive ways. So 
Yeah. Social media is a huge one. A huge one. I talked to some camp counselors this summer too. That's funny. Oh, really? And, and that's how we started out was talking about the phone issue because they noticed in the last couple of years that's usually at the beginning, the first couple of days, there's, uh, what do you call it? When they're coming off their phones. Oh, yeah, yeah. De- like a detox. Yeah. Detoxing. Yeah. yeah. They're detoxing off their phones. And so yeah. we talked a bit about that. So I agree with you 100%. They don't have to worry about that. They don't have to worry about the images. They can just have fun and be kids. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is, so much of our identities come, well, our identities come from relationships. Our, my sense of who I am is a collection of all of the faces and relationships that have interacted with me. That's a neurobiological truth, right? So every, I'm a, I'm a collection of every interaction and, and more so face-to-face. Physical interactions have more power over me in some ways, in some ways, um, in shaping me. And when kids, number one, don't know how to navigate those relationships, don't know how to even maintain them or develop them because the pandemic did play a role in that. And we're seeing that um, there's a lot of anxiety about how to do that or, or why should I do that? And so it's like reduced to texting or these very manipulated ways of or just different ways of relating uh, then my identity doesn't have the benefit of having the, the I don't know, just hanging out with, with girls, which could be tough too. You know, it's never a pretty, all, not, never always a pretty picture, but it's a different sense than interacting in the way that, that girls interact now. So the very thing that girls are using and leaning on is the very thing that can set them up to actually not have some of the skills they need to have positive relationships outside of home if that makes sense. It's like a vicious cycle. Yeah, it totally makes sense. So I'm wondering, (laughs) this leads me into a different question I was going to ask later, but are you recommending boundaries around that? Or do you have, I know one size does not fit all, so I'm not going to expect you to do that. Yeah. I mean, I, I I am not a, um, I'm a principal oriented counselor. And by that, when I'm working with parents, we think of principles rather than you should do this or you should do that. And so if I'm parenting a kid who's really struggling with face-to-face and they're faced with a situation where, um, you know, there's some dilemma on social media or, or in text group with their friends or something like that, it's like, how can I build a bridge with them so that I'm not forcing them to do something that they can't do? You must call this girl. You must go to her house. Like, how can I come alongside you? How can we write out a script? How can we have a conversation so that I'm both handing them tools. And that's going to look different from kid to kid. And, you know, for some kids, the idea of picking up a phone at this point in their development, whatever point that may be, is a 10 on a scale of one to 10. For other kids, that's like not that hard. So you might push them. Um, I, I think of when my daughter was dating, which she she was the oldest. So the boys kind of watched her get to date uh, at 16. And her little relationship was not, he, the person she was dating didn't live close. So a lot of it, they would start texting and texting. And we really wanted her to experience what it's like to have a relation, like a talking relationship, that that's not real. So this might sound kind of silly, but we really said, if you're going to date this person, and you're not going to be in the same city, then you need to set a night or two where you talk 
like face like on FaceTime or on, you know, something like that where you can see each other so that she could learn some of those cues. She could read faces. She could see the pauses that need to happen, the emotions, um, which sounded a little funny at the time. It wasn't that we were encouraging her to have this intense relationship. It's just we knew that that was a skill she was not getting from the from the cell phone. Um and being able to think through, ask her friends what she should say. You can't do any of that when you're on, you know, a visual. So those kinds of things are a great way to give our kids the skills that we see great deficits in, Mm -hmm. in the middle school and high school and even emergent adult and even parenting populations. (laughs) We see some skills that are, you know, just not where they probably should be in the area of relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I agree with you. The pandemic certainly has not helped all of that. There's major deficits, academic deficits, social deficits, emotional deficits. It might take us a while to figure out what that did over yes. culture. Yes. But yes. it definitely hasn't helped for sure. Yeah. What are some of the specific challenges you hear a lot from parents these days about raising teen girls or encouragement you seem to give them a lot? Well, I think it goes back to that. I think, um, you know, it's just, again, uh, with a group of parents recently, and two things are coming out now in today's culture. It's the gender identity issue. What do I do when my child wants to change their pronouns, change their name to something that's a little bit more androgynous um, or, you know, non-gender oriented? Um, so that's one. And I think the other is, and this, this may surprise some listeners, but it's something I'm seeing a lot. And I'm all, I see more teen girls, so I'm not going to say I see it more in teen girls. I just happen to see more teen girls, uh, which is this embracing of mental health, which is wonderful, but also a desire to be diagnosed with a mental health diagnosis to justify their pain. And that is a new phenomenon. <laughs> Isn't it? Speak that. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. That is new. We did not. So I've been counseling teenagers for 31 years this year, and that is not what we saw years ago. So there's some wonderful in that, in that we're embracing the fact that we have, uh, you know, that we, we have these mental health issues we need to address. But this movement towards wanting to be diagnosed is to validate what I'm experiencing, to validate that mine is real. I can't tell you how many teenage girls have said to me, you know, like I told her I have generalized anxiety disorder. Like you have anxiety, but I have general, like my counselor or kids who are saying, what exactly is on my record? I want, why didn't you diagnose me with this? Why did you diagnose me with this? And this is kids that are under 18 that always don't remember our conversation that we had early on or didn't know or came in with a diagnosis. Um, so, so both of those and both of those relate to identity, right? Because this idea of like this label that I'm seeking is, is to validate this experience I'm having, which is part of my identity. And it can actually be the very thing that I sort of like put before people is like, I am, I, I have major depressive disorder. I, you know, I have this, and then this sense of who am I really? And we all are both male and female in terms of our traits and characteristics. And there's this just confusing dialogue for kids out there. Uh, and it's really hard as a parent, honestly, to be quite candid, it's really hard as, as a therapist 
supervising counselors who work with teenagers as well as working with teenagers and emergent adults, how do we navigate this in a way that is both honoring to the individual who's walking this, but also um, inviting them to consider some things that have been true about human beings all along. It's why I lean on development. These things that happen that we know to be true, uh, that aren't always talked about. I'll, I'll share one. This is this, and I, I've shared this one before. I don't think I've shared it with you, Jenny. But um, when I was in college, so that was eighty-five to eighty-nine. I took a developmental psych class. I believe my junior senior year, probably towards the end, eighty-eight, eighty-nine. And I remember this because I remember having these thoughts that I had never had. But the the textbook said, and we had discussion around this, that during your adolescent years, it is a part of human development to begin to think about the same sex. It's just part of human development. We begin to think about who we are physically and who others are physically. We begin to even have um, sexual kind of images and thoughts, uh, feelings that are associated with that. And then it's a high percentage. Like I remember it was like 70 to 80% of women think about women, 70, 80% of men. This is part of our development and that we have these uh, even sexual fantasies that are part of this, this, this season. And that, that, you know, kind of changes or levels out or, you know, whatever. It's not indicative necessarily. Well, that's not the dialogue we hear today, nor what do I believe we would see that in many textbooks today anymore. Uh, I think what, what the narrative is now is if you feel those things, you are those things. If you feel this way, you are that way. If, if I feel like I have anxiety, I, I am, I'm an anxious person. I should have a diagnosis. If I feel that I'm this gender versus that, then, then that's who I am. And uh, there isn't a leveling out, a sort of a wait and see. Okay, that's instead of a dialogue, and and the uh, uh, the people around them, including parents, are often reacting to that. If I'm a 15 year old kid, and I've had many 15 or 16 year old kids say this to me, I'm having thoughts about my best friend, or my best friend and I started sort of touching each other. The reaction that other people have to that is going to inform my sense of what who I say. am. Yeah. And my sense of who I am. Right. So and our shame center. That's right. That's right. All of that. So if my friends are like, that means this, that means that you are blank, then I might be like, oh, okay. So I am. Or if my parents say, what are you talking about? You know, then exactly. And for it, it sort of arouses that shame. So there's this tension between that. So so back to social media. <laughs> I know it's not all that, but I feel like TikTok is informing so many on mental health and there a lot of it is coming through that. So I've had many teenagers who have come in my office and told me that they're having dissociative symptoms. And I'm like, what? Do you know what that means? <laughs> Can you please tell me what dissociation means to you? <laughs> yeah. And I never would have had that happen. No, when you I began would not practicing. have. <laughs> and, yeah. And sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're not right, but I think there's this information that's coming in quickly at us. And, and some of that is a beautiful thing because on Instagram, you know, I follow some people that I get somatic um, exercises that help mm -hmm. with regulation. I mean, it's so helpful. Mm -hmm. And so right. I think that there's really good information out there, but you're right. It definitely is informing them and maybe sometimes more than they're ready for or that they're not having dialogues about afterwards. They're just taking in the information and not speaking about it with somebody who maybe is more informed about those things, which is, it's interesting. Yes. And I think that's the key part 
if I just have all of these information bites that are coming at me, it doesn't necessarily, it, it will inform me, it may impact me, but what really shapes me is how those relate to the people I'm talking to around me, the relationships that I have around me. And that means that it might be helpful for some of those to get for some, for some of these situations or information to, to be exchanged with people of different opinions, right? Like not just my parents, not just my friends, but also people who maybe don't agree with what I'm saying, but that doesn't happen because we have a very divided culture, which is a whole nother episode and a whole nother problem, but we have a very divided culture, which means you tend to hear the same things because you tend to hang out with people who are saying the same things. And social media has made that even more so Mm -hmm. um, because of the way it works. The people you see on your feed, the people you see on your TikTok are all going to be the people who you are most drawn to, even if you don't know them because of the um, the way that those are set up. The algorithms. Yeah. Yeah. The algorithms. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. 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 I know that your book is so much about this. And people, we need to redirect them back to your book, which we will at the end. But what are some general ways that parents can come alongside and support their teenagers during tough times? And I'm going to be candid for a second. I feel like as a counselor, I've always been really objective with teenagers. And I've really been able to come alongside them and understand where they're coming from. But it is much harder when you're standing face to face with your own child that you cannot be objective (laughs) with. (laughs) Yeah. So it is. I agree 100%. And so I'll tell you the best starting place. And this is hard to do. It's hard to do in any of my relationships, even with my grown children. So we know a lot about something called primary process communication or what's called implicit communication. And those are fancy words that just mean your child is sensing your nervous system before they even know it. And, uh, and your nervous system can't lie. So I can say, I love you, kids. I'm safe. I want to talk to you about something. I promise I'm not going to bite your head off. But if my nervous system does not feel safe to my kids, and this is not something you can ask your kid necessarily, like you might be able to, but it's like um, felt by them, then then you're not safe. And the, if you're not safe, then you, you are not the best person. And I mean, safe, like emotionally safe and grounded and, and you know, relatively calm. You aren't going to be able to have the opportunity to impact the most vulnerable, the most hidden, the most volatile, the most confused places in your kid's soul. You just aren't because your kid's going to, their nervous system is going to invite them to protect. And again, this is so fast. Their nervous system is reading this before they hear your words. Uh, It's called right brain to right brain communication sometimes. So I always tell parents, if there's work for you to do, it's to be quiet and learn how to regulate. And your kid isn't, there's no great thing, except for in crisis situations, there's no great thing they're going to miss from you if you're quiet and you're regulating. And number two, what their nervous system was designed to do is to match yours. So you actually have more power over your child calming down by you calming down. And you know this, parents have heard this forever, but now we have the neuroscience to prove it, like the really incredible uh, studies that show one person calm, another person calm. It's what, you know, equine is about. It's what pet therapy is about, all kinds of animal uh, relationships that are helpful. Um, 
those relationships can calm our nervous system. So your child, and I will often use this language, is borrowing your nervous system. If your nervous system is like hijacked because you're so dang mad at your kid, they will not borrow yours or they will borrow yours and they'll be in it with you, right? So the best thing that we can do as parents is to be safe and soft. And so safe means like regulating our nervous system and soft is soft with our eyes, soft with our tones, soft with our expressions. Uh, it's really hard to do. If my kid's making me mad, they're probably not going to see delight in my gaze. But I'll tell you something. Your kids are looking for someone whose gaze is excited to see them. Even when they say the things you feared, I am this identity, I am having sex with this, or whatever it is that you fear. Yeah. How do I just still offer I'm that, that gaze that says I'm delighted to see you. I'm happy to be with you right now. That's not forced. Mm -hmm. uh, it starts with your nervous system, mom and dad. It really does. It starts with your nervous system getting soft and you imagining somebody's eyes of delight towards you will soften yours and make you kind of go, oh yeah, I'm so loved. I'm good. I got this. And, and that's a process. That doesn't happen. We see stories in the Bible where Jesus did this very fast because Jesus was God. We cannot do this as fast. This takes a lot of time for people to sort of slow their nervous system down and be attuned to their body. What's happening to your body? Is it relaxed or tight? What's happening in your stomach? What's your breath rate? That's one of the best ones. How hot or cold are you? How much are you fidgeting? All of that is a sign of what's happening in your nervous system. So if all you can do is sit there and deep and take some deep breaths, that's a great, great thing. And it's the thing that kind of leads to atta secure attachment or a safe connection with your child. Mm -hmm. And your child longs for that. Uh, one of my favorite books out there, I've got a two, two that I, I, I always tell parents of teens they should read. Well, three if you count my book, but you know. <laughs> the other two that I love are um, Hold on, Hold, Hold Your Kids Close by Newfeld and Mate, and another one called Power of Showing Up. And, and both of these books really deconstruct these ideas beautifully with lots of good examples. Uh, hold Your Kids Close or Keep Your Kids Close or Hold On to Your Kids. That's what it is. Hold On to Your Kids is really talking about the problem of what's called peer orientation. And it kind of goes back to this problem we're seeing that I talked about with you about identity. We have these parents who are letting go of the attachment too soon. And so we have a, what's called a peer-oriented uh, culture, which is kids leading kids. Kids sort of being the attachment figures for their kids. And what that basically means is they're imprinting or they're letting them lead the way morally. Um, and uh, yeah, even shaping their sense of who they are and letting go of parents a little too early. Uh, so it's a both and. Peers are pulling and parents are, are letting go too soon um, in frustration. I can't do this. And it's not as complex as we think it is. It's hard. It's messy. But we, you will never go wrong if you work on being safe and you work on really being soothing in your presence and you work on really seeing underneath what your kid is showing. Not seeing the behavior that's terrible, but seeing underneath that and thinking, what could be motivating this? Is it fear? Is it insecurity? Is it, I'm, am I a threat right now? Probably. <laughs> you just named the S's. Yes. Clean, yes. Safe, soothed, secure is the and other secure. one. Secure. Right? Okay. Yes. Yes. And the book, The Power of Showing Off, Power of Showing Up by Dan Siegel, really deconstructs those really well. And um, 
and talks about those in a practical way. I've given that book to people who don't even have kids, but who are running a business. And they've said, this is the best business book they've ever read. So for those parents who don't like reading parenting books, read it for the sake of your business and your colleagues, because you will glean some good information from that about yourself and about more so about your relationships. Although I've noticed that the people who listen to podcasts really like audiobooks, So maybe that's the way to go. If they don't have time to sit down, there you go. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Okay. Having already raised your own children and being in a new season right now of life and being able to take off professionally and everything and so much wisdom that you have that you've written down in a book even, do you have any encouragement you'd like to give parents that are in the thick of it right now? Yes. I would say generally speaking, it gets so much better. It gets so much better. And the other thing is you your parenting doesn't end when they leave. I, I grieved so much when I became an empty nester, uh, so much so that it, I, you know, I ended up going into therapy w- once or twice a month, actually once or, once a week for a while, uh, because I, I started doubting like who I was and what, what happened and could I have done it differently? It was really kind of in a little bit of a crisis to be quite honest. Uh, and I got a lot out of that. Uh, counseling is a good thing. I continue to see this therapist. But one of the things was just like, I was panicking over something that didn't end. My my impact of my kids is different. They don't live in my home, but it's crystallized. It's very focused now. I have conversations via phone. I have a daughter who's, uh, who's about to have a, well, not about, she's pregnant, but she's going to have a baby next year. And one of the things I'm doing is I, she lives nearby, but I'm writing her letter every week. And it's just a way to, to love her well in this season and to sort of give her some nuggets. So there are all these different ways that open up to us when our kids leave the home that in some ways uh, make our work a little easier because it's very, very focused. And I can't tell you the number of times our kids, my, I mean, my husband and I's mouth has dropped when our kids have said something and we're just like, who is this kid? <laughs> this was not who he was or she was growing up because they shift and change. And, and many times we do hear thank yous. Our kids realize, I think the best thing to remember is long haul parenting makes sense. Meaning like, look at the horizon, think of who you want your kids to be and who you want your, what you want your relationship to be like, and just do those things that you know to do, which is like loving them well, shepherding their souls, being kind, um, validating them, um, not freaking out so much by these temporary things, but learning to look beneath all of that. The fruit of that doesn't come in the teen years for many of us. It just didn't, it didn't for me, it came beyond that. And that's the sweetest thing of all. That is the sweetest thing of all. So that is very encouraging. Thank you for that. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. Is there anything else you feel like you would want to say that we didn't get to talk about? Um, yeah, I wrote this down. Uh, and this may have been partly from KJ Ramsey, who's another favorite of mine. I know you've had her on the show. Um, I think this may have been from her or Kurt Thompson, but it was just talking about shepherding souls and that actually I know who it was from. It's from a new book I just read. Dallas Willard is quoted in here and he says the most important thing about shepherding souls 
and he was talking about spiritual formation, but parenting as well, is that you must love the souls you're shepherding. And what I would add to that, that's an obvious, but what I would add to that is that you must love the souls you're shepherding in a way that those souls experience that love. They feel it. They feel loved. So it's not just that they know that they're loved, but they experience that love in the form of a note when they least deserve it, an outing, a walk when they least, you know, grace, uh, grace moments, eyes that light up when they walk into the room, even though 10 minutes ago you wanted to you know, do something else. <laughs> so I think that is such a great statement and it's basic, but it's so, so true. The most important thing about shepherding souls is that you must love them in a way that they feel it. Mm-hmm. It's a yeah. good word. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Tell everybody the name of your book and where they can find all your things. Yeah. It's called Heart Cries of Every Teen. Eight Core Desires That Demand Attention. And the best place to get that is uh, Amazon. It's also on Barnes & Noble and a couple other places, but Amazon has it, has it. So, yeah. And it's super helpful. Thank you. Thank you. And so was Thank this conversation. You. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jenny. It's always good to see you. Thanks again, Jackie, for being on today's podcast episode. I always enjoy talking to you. I really appreciate your time and wisdom, and I know the podcast listeners do too. Friends, if you enjoyed listening to Jackie and you want to know more, I really suggest you check out her book, Heart Cries of Every Teen. You can find it on Amazon and many other places, and I will link to that in today's show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, then I really encourage you to check out next week's as well when we dive into the lives of teen guys. I'm raising a couple of them, and I gained some good information in next week's podcast interview with my friend and colleague, Taylor Hayden. So make sure you check back next Tuesday for that episode. If you're not already subscribed to the podcast, please go subscribe on whatever streaming app you like. And you can find me on Instagram or Twitter at Pause Renew Next. You can also join our Facebook page at Pause Renew Next, and I will link to that also in today's show notes. I'm Jenny Detweiler with PRN. Pause, renew, next. May you be encouraged on your journey with Jesus.